You didn't have to go with them, right? Yeah, yeah, I got it, I got it. No, no, it's just, it's, uh, we're going to be addressing in the next uh, few weeks here uh, some issues because our, our child population has grown so much that we, we now have certain challenges in our classrooms, and so uh, we're going to be addressing that. It's not that we're not unaware, it's just that it slipped up on us which is a good problem to have, and I would rather have the problem of rearranging rooms and recruiting teachers and that kind of stuff than, you know, that's, that's a good problem. That's why I love that sound. So we're, we're on the road. Yeah. Is it not working? There we go. Thank you. Oh, that is better. That is better. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I uh, started a series uh, on the theme of becoming stuck and unstuck and rescuing the stuck. I mean, that, that kind of resonates, I don't know, with me right now. I, um, it, this summer, I've been kind of wrestling with being stuck myself uh, and still am in, to, in, in certain areas. And so as I did that, I, I began... I thought of Psalms 107 because it's it's one of my favorite psalms and it has a, a way of resonating uh, and telling us about God's response to people who are stuck, people who are in pain, people who are confused. And so I, I brought back the verse. I just want you to see how it addresses. It says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love or his hesed endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, for he redeemed them from the hand of the foe. And then he gives four illustrations or four examples. Dry deserts, darkest prisons or darkest death sometimes, foolish decisions, and violent natural forces. And those are the things that the ancients wrestled with. We still wrestle with them. Uh, They they still cause problems. Uh, But I also want us to address our issues, modern issues. And I think this morning I'm going to try to address one of the issues that that goes deep with people and gets them in a hole and and causes them to lose their their bearings and lose their faith. And that's hopelessness. Uh, I ran across this quote uh, from Timothy Keller, this book, Making Sense of God. I'm relying on uh, partially for this series because it's really a beautiful, deep, thoughtful book that will make you wrestle with the issues. But he says the suicide rate surges to a, a U.S. suicide rate surges to a 30-year high, said the headline in the April 2016 New York Times front page article. The overall suicide rate rose 24% from 1999 to 2014, with the rise over the last eight years double the annual rises for the first seven years. It tripled for girls ages 10 to 14. Wow. Wow. What is it in our society that's causing that kind of response, that kind of despair, even among our youth? What is it that causes them to give up on life so early? Part of that is sixth grade and middle school, and I understand the challenges of that. 
But there's something missing. There's something that, that's, that's, I don't know. He goes on to quote modern fiction writers. New York Times did a, a, a survey, and they ask, you know, what, what are the themes of today? It said they seem to have decided that despair, alienation, bleakness are the most meaningful and interesting descriptors of the human condition. And our ennui, our confusion, our angst, the end of days, malaise, we are suspicious of the fullness of life. In fact, one of the authors polled said that modern American fiction writers seem to be flummoxed by joy. They don't know what to do with it. And I'm going, where's that coming from? As, as, as you look at the movie scene and you look at TV series and, and you look at the fascination in novels with serial killing and, and, and you look at all the dystopian views of the, the future of how we're going to uh, end with our cities in total destruction and we're going to run out of energy and, and we're going to pollute our environment so much that massive storms are going to tear up the earth and 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 there's this vision that it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and and the question is what stands in the way of that well the only thing that our world offers is what i would call secular optimism what i mean by that is since we've kind of left god behind as a culture then the only thing we have to rely on is that somehow, some way, human beings are going to be different in the future than they are now. How's that working for us? Maybe that's the source of that suicide rate. If we rely on our secular optimism and we look at our world, where do we find the power to sacrifice in the now in order to have a better future. We can't even stand to talk to each other. Um, I, there is a university not very far from here whose teachers are striking and picketing and, and wanting to get a, a certain restaurant off the campus because it has a, a view of humanity that they can't stand. Chick-fil-A, and, and they say they want it off the campus because it's bigoted. And as I read that article and I saw the news, I went, wait a minute. We want to get hate out of the world by hating haters. And if I'm supposed to hate haters, does that mean I have to hate you because you hate haters? And if we hate the haters who hate haters, do we hate those haters do you see where that ends up? There's no solution there. there. There's nothing that causes us to to enter and love the hater, and so the hater changes. Is there? I I think that's what's missing. Because secular optimism has no power. It's just, okay, it's going to be okay. I'm not one going to be a pessimist. I'm going to be an optimist. 
I got news for you. That's not much of a defense against the catastrophes and the things that hit us in life. You've got to have something deeper. The Bible talks about hope. It doesn't talk about optimism. So today I want us to think about hope. What does that mean? I want to suggest there's three reasons that Christian hope is better than secular optimism. Here's where the optimism comes in. Andrew Del Blanco, he had wrote a book, The Great American Dream. He's a, hist- a historian. He writes that human beings need to organize the sequence of individual sensations and life experiences into a particular story. We have, we have a need to see ourselves in a story. And when that story leads somewhere, it gives us hope. We cannot, Del Banco argues, bear life without living or by living only in the present, facing one disconnected event after another, pursuing only instant desire. There's got to be something that holds it together, that gives us the sense that, that, that we're moving in the right direction, that we're doing the right thing, that we're holding on to the right ideas. We've got to have that. And where do we find it? This is where our Christian answer excels. The first is that hope in Christianity is deeded in, is, is, is rooted in deep relationships. It's a relational question. It's what brings love into our existence. And our problem as humans is the reason optimism doesn't work for us is because love gets clogged. It gets clogged. You, you, you have discovered that there's a lot of reasons why you withhold love from each other. It doesn't take a big excuse sometimes, does it? You think about it. If we're looking at the perfectibility of human beings and we're looking for optimism for us to change ourselves, we can't even open our pipe of love for people sometimes, can we? And as we think about that, you know, we need a champion. We, we need someone who can show us how to unclog that pipe, don't we? Someone who lives with a wide open channel for love. We know one person. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Christian hope is based on the life of Jesus who shows us a full open channel kind of love into people's lives, doesn't he? Reconciliation. He comes to us even though we rejected him. He knows how to love the hater. Wow. That's a hard road to travel. But he knows how to do it. He showed us the way. He, 
he brings into our lives a freedom from the power of death. You say, wow, wait a minute. I've got the secular answer. When you die, you're dead like Rover all over, and you're just returned to the dust. And boy, how much hope does that bring you? Because you see, the problem is, is that we're not afraid of death being the end. In fact, I think most of us could relax and go, wow, it's just going to be over in a few more years? That's all i got to put up with? Wow, that's okay. That's not the problem. The problem is that we're afraid that the death is not the end of things. That's our real fear. And we know deep down inside of us that life is so vital and so alive that death probably isn't the end. And if death is not the end, then what? What gives us an answer beyond the grave? That's the question of hope. What makes us put our life aside and give up and sacrifice for our next generation? Isn't that a valid question? I think that's why Christianity has a deeper answer to the problem than just secular optimism. Jesus points beyond perfect actions to an unending relationship. And that's powerful. The second one is that that concrete example of hope in Jesus changes our current experience. It's not just what we do with death, but it changes how we live now. I want to share with you a quote that I ran into from one of the great historians of the African-American slavery culture of the 1900s. His name is Howard Thurman. In the the late 1950s, he wrote several books about the impact and the reason behind, the the faith behind the African-American spirituals. And, and as he wrote that, I want you to, I'm going to share a couple of longer quotes with you because I, it, it's just, well, I'm going to do it anyway. The spirituals encompass Christian belief in a final judgment, a day on which all wrongs will be made right. It also included a belief in personal immortality and the reunion with loved ones forever. Out of these doctrines, the conviction grew that this is the kind of universe that cannot deny ultimately the demands of love and longing. Uniting with loved ones turned finally on, finally on the hope of immortality and the issue of immortality turned on God and therefore God would make it right. It taught people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face, the, uh, in the face those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment, with all of its cruelty, would not crush. This enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to live. If such things were, were seen as mere symbols, the, the, the ideas in the, in the song of crowns and 
heaven and so forth. They would never have served to provide a life of hope. Slaves, when the prospects for improvement were so small, needed concrete ideas. Imagine, imagine how ludicrous it would have been to sit down with a group of early 19th century slaves and say, quote, there will never be a judgment day in which wrongdoing will be put right. There is no future world in life in which your desires will ever be satisfied. This life is all there is. When you die, you simply cease to exist. Our only real hope for a better world lies in improved social policy. Now with these things in mind, go out there, keep your head high, and live a life of courage and love. Don't give in to despair. Sounds a little ridiculous when you say it that way, doesn't it? We have to have a hope here in order to endure what we endure here with the kind of life that gives us the ability to connect with each other here. We have to hold on to that. And it relies, it, it centers in the realization that God is going to make it right. I've quoted to you Yerushab Vol every once in a while. He was a, uh, a pastor in Croatia during the, the Serbian-Croatian War and the genocides that went back and forth. And he helped in the aftermath of what went on, trying to help people forgive. And he said the only people that he ran into that were able to forgive and go on and recreate relationships across that vicious divide were people who believed that God was a God of justice and that they could trust him to take his revenge and they didn't need to. Power of hope. Amos says it this way, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Why? We need that belief in order to let go of the viciousness that we do to each other. Wow. Or we can take a different illustration. One of my favorite. I love Lord of the Rings. The reason I got onto this is my grandson is writing papers in Maple Woods and he had to write papers on a movie and guess what he picked? And of course, you know, hey, brings back all that stuff. And, and this is from The Hobbit, actually. And, and, and it's, it's Smog, the dragon, and, and all of that. And, and I got to thinking about a series that I saw uh, called Finding the Hobbit, where the art director that created all this imagery, it took him 15 years to create the art and the sets behind that whole movie. Okay? He traveled all over and saw how Tolkien picked fantasy and 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 legends from all over northern Europe. But they, they were looking for the hobbit because they could never find the fantasy source for the hobbit. There's no hobbit in all of that. And they were struggling to figure out where the hobbit came from. And through five hours of looking for the hobbit all over Europe, they came to the conclusion that the hobbit came from Tolkien's mind because the hobbit was human experience in a life of confusion, in a life of magic, in a life that cannot be explained, in a life of great threat, 
And it's the hobbits who start off young and innocent and who are the ones in the end who go back to their culture as mature people, helping them find answers because they've struggled with the bigger issues. Wow. And what Tolkien takes from that is that we need that idea of fantasy in our lives. Fairy tales, he said, appeal to that part of us that the gospel has an answer for. Wow. Man, you think about it. We need that hope. We need it historically. We need to experience it. Not as a fairy tale, but as a hope in a real life that Jesus historically has brought among us and answers that heart need that's called to by our desire to see the forces in our world under control. And the final one that I want to point out to you is that hope in the New Testament, hope in the Christian world is unimaginably wonderful and it's about an unimaginably wonderful tomorrow. It's about a new heaven and a new earth. It's about relationships and life in the presence of God. It's about life with human beings, with a love channel in their life, totally unplugged, where we experience full, beautiful love together forever. I... We, we try to picture heaven in all kinds of ways, and we have these utopian visions of heaven and so forth. But I want you to see what heaven is where love becomes so real that it just surrounds you. And it draws that love from you in those relationships. Imagine what could be built in that kind of environment. That's heaven. That's heaven. I'm going to show you a, a, a movie clip in just a minute, but I want you to understand the context. Um, Alec had another writing project. He had to write about a culture, and so he chose the culture of autism because that's where he lives. I thought that was pretty cool. And there's a hero in the culture of autism. Her name is Temple Grandin. I don't know if you've ever watched the movie Temple Grandin. You can get it for free if you have Amazon Prime. Just go put Temple Grandin in and watch the movie. And if you don't cry by the end, you've got a clogged pipe. That's a good pipe inspection movie. Okay? Every time I see it, I don't make it through. Alec looked over at me and said, Granddad, are you crying? I'm, yeah, I'm crying. Because it's about a girl who didn't speak before she was four and so on and so forth. And, and, and she ran into a teacher that understood finally that she sees life in pictures. She doesn't think in words. She thinks in pictures. And, and, and he finally got on the page and he was able to open her to be able to go into new experiences by giving her this image. It's like a door, he says. This next part of your life, going to college, 
She became a PhD. She's a teacher at Colorado State University with a PhD with autism, severe autism. And you go, how? Because this teacher gave her this saying. I quote it from the movie. Think about the future as going through a door that's going to open up a whole new world for you, and all you have to do is go through it. All you have to do is go through it. And she did that time after time. Go through it. Eric. I am not familiar with calm the down. Calm down. calm down, sweetie. Sweetie, calm down. It would be better calm if you down. could get her to sit calmly. To try to control her. But we were told self-stimming is good. It eventually calms them. Self-stimming? Yes, self-comforting. Self-stimulation. Rocking, spinning, rolling on the floor, flapping. Well, I think spinning is good. And then rolling, too. Self-stimulation does seem to eventually calm the nervous system. It can be a way to compensate for not being held. Being held by another person is scary, but, but rolling or, or being held by surfaces produces the calming effect that ordinary children get from a hug. How old's your child? Well, I don't have children. Uh. No, I'm autistic. And I need the sensation of being hugged. And I've developed a machine that I get into and hugs me, and I'm different afterwards. I'm more social. Well, I didn't speak until I was four. Now I have a BA and a master's, and I'm studying for my doctorate. How did you learn to speak? Please don't shout. Please don't shout. Most autistic people are very sensitive to sounds and colors. Overstimulation hurts. You know, people talking too much at once, you know, can cause us to panic. How did you get cured? Well, I'm not cured. I'll always be autistic. My mother refused to believe that I wouldn't speak. And when I learned to speak, she made me go to school. And in school and at home, manners and rules were really important. They were pounded into me. I was lucky. All these things worked for me. Everyone worked hard to make sure that I was engaged. And they knew I was different, but not less. No, I had a gift. I could see the world in a new way. I could see details that other people were blind to. My mother pushed me to become self-sufficient. I worked summers at my aunt's ranch. I went to boarding school and college. Those things, those things were uncomfortable for me at first, but they helped me to open doors to new worlds. Excuse me, please, but... We want to hear everything. like a door that's what hope is it's like a door and as we walk through it into the lives of each of us and into the life that is before us 
and the life that comes after we die. It changes us here. It allows us to see each other, in the words of Temple, as different but not less. That's our greatest challenge as human beings because there's something in us that drives us to want to be more than those around us, even to the point of putting others down so that we can feel like we are more. Isn't that true? Or am I the only one? I'm going to end it with this. Hope, when you see it in the Bible, comes in many forms, but one of the clearest, most often repeated phrases is this one. Be strong and courageous and do not be afraid. That's the concrete expression of hope.